last time. In the movie, Ronan, Ronan is not the dude's name. The yearbook sportscast, Ugh, baseball season. I would think baseball is going to come back this year. Everything that's going on right now, there's going to be a baseball season starting tomorrow. The very next day, there's not going to be a baseball season this year or any year. Everything going on right now is a negotiating ploy. But even if baseball doesn't come back this year, the sport is not ruined forever. A baseball has certainly done a lot over the decades to do real damage to itself, canceling that World Series in the 90s, becoming a league of haves and have-nots, unresolved labor problems. Yay, no strike, but we didn't solve anything. Price gouging with tickets. But as far as the fans go, this doesn't really feel like the hard feelings backlash of the past. It's more the fans missing it and saying, where's the baseball? Now, as far as the dispute, the hang-up between the owners and the players, the players aren't saints. But it surprised me anyway that almost two-thirds of Major League Baseball players, about 65%, earn a million dollars or less. The minimum is 500000 The conventional wisdom is that even some bench warmer who never plays is making $2 million a year. But that's not true. Absolutely. Don't feel sorry for them. These guys are making great, great livings. The point is that they've been training all their lives for this moment, and now they have a very small window to make as much as they can before they're cut for good. And now thanks to the owners, who haven't been signing perfectly serviceable or better 28-year-old, 29-year-old, and 30-year-old players, that window to make a salary got even smaller. What I mean is you come out of the minors, you're not making any money, you finally make a little bit of money in the major leagues, and then after two, three, four years, you're finally in line for that big raise, and no one will sign you. Meanwhile, the owners have never, ever in history been in better shape to withstand a financial hit like this, or at least soften the financial blow, yet they won't acknowledge that fact. Or apparently acknowledge other things. It was sad to read in Sports Illustrated that several unidentified minor league baseball teams say their major league parent clubs haven't even called during the pandemic to see how things are going. And minor league baseball isn't likely to come back and doesn't make $10 billion a year. Now some Astros players are calling out the Yankees. Uh, a federal judge supposedly has ordered the unsealing of a 2017 letter. Now, there's been a stay in that, so there's a hang-up. Uh, the, the one judge's ruling was overruled, so this is still working its way through the legal system. But a federal judge had ordered the unsealing of a 2017 letter that alleges further sign-stealing by the Yankees. The Yankees had previously been fined for dugout phone infractions, cheating with a dugout phone during the 2015 and 2016 seasons, but that story was quickly buried by the avalanche of Astros and then Red Sox allegations. Right now, it's thought that 2017 letter won't reveal much that's new. And some have argued that it looks bad that the Astros, who are still employed despite sign stealing, are the last people who should be ridiculing the Yankees. But really, this is the problem with everyone piling on the Astros. Disclaimer, the Astros were wrong for what they did and should be criticized. But if any of these vocal critics who were so aghast that the Astros could steal championships from deserving teams and ruin baseball for everyone, if any of those critics also stole signs or bent the rules to gain any illegal advantage in any illegal way at any time during their careers, beware the coming serious backlash. So many were publicly so hard on Houston, it actually makes me think everyone else in baseball really is innocent. Could anyone be this dumb to blame them that publicly while also cheating? But seriously, 
the Astros and Red Sox were the only teams that cheated. Just two teams and just those players and coaches while they were only on those two teams. We'll see. Uh, says in the yearbook at Hotmail.com. That's to contact us. This is the uh, yearbook sportscast, which is available on so many, many, many platforms for some reason. Uh, and not to have the East Coast bias, uh, staying on the East Coast, but what is going on with the potential sale of the Mets? Several outlets report the team says it is still for sale. The current owners, the Wilpons, said last winter they wanted to sell and almost sold, but the sale collapsed allegedly because Fred Wilpon wanted the cash from the transaction, but he also wanted his son Jeff to still run the Mets. So essentially, Jeff Wilpon would have been the fantasy owner of a real team at a cost of $0, which, as you know, is a lot less than it would have cost him to be the fantasy owner of a fake team in your fantasy league. Or another way, Fred Wilpon would have been rich again, and the new owner would inherit Jeff Wilpon, who would make all the Mets' decisions without actually paying for any of them. It's the perfect system. And here we are again. But part of that is probably because of a lack of sports, but this is probably something we talk about anyway, which is probably why no one listens to this podcast on purpose. Once again, like we didn't see The Last Dance, we have not seen the 30 for 30 Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire documentary, Long Gone Summer. But again, like with The Last Dance, we were like, oh, a documentary about Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. Did we really need this? Obviously, with documentaries, you need people to fund them, and you need people to watch them, which likely eliminates a lot of interesting subjects, including probably this one. But here goes. How about one on early 2000s Duke University football? Seriously, here were a bunch of Blue Devils teams that lost almost constantly, but they produced some future NFL players, in addition to three players who wound up in movies— one of them was in the uh, football scene in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, those teams also included Zach Marides, who, while still at Duke, invented an internet program that helps teams manage their schedules. Marides was still a Duke football player and couldn't make any money off of his program while Duke football and lacrosse were using his program. Reggie Love went from Blue Devils wide receiver to President Obama's personal aide. Duke won one game. In the two years, future NFL head coach Bill O'Brien was an assistant coach. A quarterback, Gene Deladon, the older brother of future WNBA superstar Elena Deladon, was there. Receiver Jeremy Battier, the younger brother of Duke and NBA player Shane Battier, was there. Uh, Duke had a guy named Dukes. Duke had another guy named D. All on teams that had to put up with being labeled one of the worst teams in the nation. All while one of the best teams in the nation, Duke basketball, was literally right over there on the other side of the sidewalk. Extend this Duke football documentary out to 2010, 11, and 12, and then you have future pro Lakin Tomlinson, a Jamaican player who has a story a lot like the blind side. Uh, you have safety Chris Tavares, who left the team to pursue acting. Ever heard of Casey Undercover? No? It had Zendaya in it. This year's remake of Valley Girl, ever heard of that? What about the TV series Lethal Weapon? Chris Tavares has been in all those. And you have the son of John Mellencamp, who joined Duke to play receiver and defensive back. You carry this movie out to modern day, and you have Duke football full of players, like the two who used a 3D printer to make a custom pad to protect their quarterback's injury. But the teams are now winning 
and producing number one draft picks like Daniel Jones, the quarterback who got the 3D printed pad to protect his injury. It's hard to believe with Duke basketball right across the sidewalk being so overexposed that the football team's story is pretty much unexposed. And yes, I would absolutely watch this over and over and over. (laughs) 